0: listening to changing reality changing reality where we bend reality all across the world only on wqhs radio so hey everyone and welcome back to another episode of changing reality we're so so excited to have you guys here with us and thank you guys for watching in for another Thursday. Um, So today's episode is going to be extremely amazing. You guys are going to learn so much from today. But before we go to that, for any of our new listeners, for anyone who may be watching the show for the first time, um, let's introduce ourselves. So hey, everyone, my name is Harsha. I'll be your DJ for today. Changing Reality is a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are, in essence, changing their own reality. So we'll be hanging out and interviewing social change makers, entrepreneurs, business owners, top executives, to even artists, musicians, and inspiring individuals from all across the world, bringing their stories to you guys here on the Penn campus and across the globe, too. So as we hear these inspiring stories, hopefully it will inspire us in turn to see how we can make our mark and change the lives of those around us, too. And I wanted to do this show simply because I feel like there are a lot of people out there who do phenomenal things and make waves in the lives of those around them. And I'm super passionate about hearing those stories and learning how people are changing the world in their own capacities. And more importantly, the stories behind them that enable them to be the people that they are today so that we could recreate those experiences that are meaningful to our own journeys in our own spaces. And personally, I also founded and run a youth movement called Ascendance in Malaysia, which is where I'm from, um, that basically collaborates with global organizations, ministries of education, NGOs, community partners to help provide an alternative education platform for any student who wants to change their reality. And we've worked with students from elementary all the way up to college through various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities, and projects to help them discover their passion and uh, learn about the world around them so that they can take that passion and turn it into a career that's meaningful and creates impact in the world around them, even though they may still be in school. And we've been fortunate to date to work with over 15,000 students in 900 communities and have incubated countless number of student-run projects and social enterprises run by kids aged 8 to 25 years old. And that's the power of stories, because the core essence of what we do there is getting these inspiring stories and messages out there. And I'm so proud that we've got lots of our students actually listening in, so that hopefully you guys can further take the things that you learn and use it to build yourselves. Just to show how far and important these stories have gone in changing lives, we're actually organizing a conference in September for over 50,000 students across the globe, where all of the speakers are Gen Z change makers um, from different parts of the world, from actually eight different countries, and the best part these Gen Z change makers, despite being multiple award winners, are students themselves. So students who are, for example, 10 years old in Tanzania who run their own startups or uh, 17 year olds in countries like India who run million dollar businesses or even 21 year olds who run um, social enterprises that prevent cardiovascular disease in Italy. And it's creating this global movement of fluctuation of stories that really makes the world turn around and keeps us all inspired and informed so if you guys have any questions about it do drop it in the show chat below if you have anything else that you guys want to talk about any topics that you find is interesting let me know as well and we'll pick them up on changing reality too so our guest today is an expert in marketing strategy human and organization performance learning and knowledge management and so much more named one of the top 10 pricing authorities in the world by OpenView Ventures venture partners Our guest has helped companies from Fortune 500s to startups drive returns and increase profits. He also serves as the CEO and director of Teamfit, a company he co-founded. And prior to that, he served as CEO of Leverage Point Innovations, a firm that that provides a value-based pricing platform. And today, he actually um, is the founder and CEO of Ibaka, country, a a company that actually um, does something very, very innovative, if I might add, and something that inspires me personally, especially after I've heard the name behind the company. So Bay in a nutshell um, uh, is a talent talent company, is a social skills platform that gives companies insight into the true skills that they have within their organization and access their extended talent networks. So, whether it's for consulting companies and professional service groups um, at IT companies to use their platform to find the right people for a team or to create better teams in a sense to, um, so that these better teams can meet happier customers and a stronger bottom line. So, very, very innovative approach. And without further ado, let's bring the CEO and founder himself, Stephen Ford, to our virtual screen. So hi, Stephen, how are you today?
1: I am great, Harsha. How are you?
0: I'm great. Thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully, you're having a good day so far. And I know we have talked, we were talking about this just before the show, so I thought it's a good question to start off. But amazing company that you do, the idea of transforming teams transforms your, your relationships with customers, transforms your back- bottom line. Amazing concept. But i got to ask, how did you come up with the name Ibaka in the first place?
1: Well, that's, a, that's a great question, Harsha, because it actually gets to the kind of company we are. Um, so IBA is very much about helping individuals and individuals working together to really understand what their potential is and to find ways of putting that potential to work. So we start with the, the individual people and how they combine in teams. So rather than starting from the organization and what the organization needs and working down, we start with uh, the individuals. And our goal really is to help everyone understand what their skills are, what their skills could be, how they can use them, and who they can use them with. That's a a, a big dream. um, And it's a dream that has developed over uh, decades, actually. And the people um, at Ibaka, Many of us have been working together in one way or another for over 20 years in in different conditions, in different patterns. So one of the co-founders of Ibaka, Karen Chang, was looking for a name for this new venture that we were setting off on. And her daughter who was a high school student at the time was studying Egyptian hieroglyphics. And she came down one morning and her daughter was there at the kitchen table studying. And she saw the Egyptian hieroglyphics for um, ib, which is uh, heart, and then for Ba, which is personality, and then for Ka, which is the creative spirit. And she felt, hmm, that's interesting, because really what we are is we're, we're trying to engage not just the intelligence, but the emotions and support people emotionally. And we see each person as an individual and unique, you know, the problem with, with some um, skill management uh, platforms is they're very narrow uh, and they try to push people into roles and they don't celebrate each of our uniqueness. And you can't really get anything done unless that that creative spark is there. And uh, a number of the people um, in Ibaka come from the creative industries. Um, Interactive designers, artists, uh, poets, and that creative spark is important in our personal lives and also to the company and what we're trying to, to support and help our users
0: with. Okay, very, very interesting. And that is a very enlightened perspective to take. I feel like you you would have been someone who is an entrepreneur yourself to be able to realize that in a way. So definitely tells um, how successful of a serial entrepreneur you've been. And of course, I love the whole Egyptian hieroglyphics playing a part into the naming process. Amazing um, representation, I feel like very, very unique. So Kind of, you mentioned that a lot of the people who you work with uh, today actually embarked on somewhat of a 20 years journey towards where we are today in a sense. So maybe let's try to backtrack a little bit to how you started your journey and your career and how you got to where you are today. So. Let's all flashback in a moment. You actually started as a student uh, who was a, I, I was a psychology student uh, in your bachelor's degree, which I can kind of see like this, the similarities of like, un, like, learning about people and all of that that it still plays a factor into the work that you do today. But back then, did you know that this was such a, like, like, did you know that you'd be doing this? Was this always the plan, in a sense, to work with people? Or did that evolve around the way? Were you a lost college student like the rest of us, or did you already have the grand plan in mind?
1: Um, I certainly did not have the grand plan in mind. Um, So my degree was in psychology, but with a lot of mathematics and today, we would probably call it um, cognitive science. But back when I was in university, cognitive science had not really formed. Um, And it's it's funny because my brother-in-law is now the Dean of cognitive science at the university that I studied at and knows um, some of my former professors. Most of them have retired, of course, by now. Uh, But anyway, so no, I um, was very young when I was at university. I graduated when I was 18. And I felt no need to go directly on um, to do a master's degree. So I had been accepted into a number of master's programs uh, to do this is the sort of uh, mathematical modeling of uh, human memory and human cognition. But I thought, you know, you know I'm, I'm 18, I have time. I'll take a short trip to Asia. This is back in the late 1970s and rather than you know, going to Europe, it was much more cool to go to Asia. And I was interested in Zen Buddhism and haiku and those sorts of things. So I pla- I thought I would take a short six-month uh, trip to Asia. Uh, and uh, then I would come back uh, and go to graduate school. And most people assumed I was going to go into some sort of academic discipline. However, um, I can't, I don't like it when people tell me what to learn or what to read. So I really like learning. I'm passionate about learning. And I found that now that I'm in my 60s, I have to learn faster because I have less time left. But I've never been very good at uh, being directed, so I, um, my, my short six-month trip to, to Asia uh, ended up taking 10 years.
0: Okay, a little but, bit longer than expected, I see.
1: Longer than expected, and during those 10 years I lived in Copenhagen in Denmark, which last time I checked was not in Europe, I, I, so it was not in Asia. And I, lived in, I lived in Copenhagen and I lived in Chiang Mai in Thailand, but I lived mostly in Tokyo, Japan. And I learned Japanese uh, and I initially made a career as a translator.
0: Oh,
1: of all trans- right. Japanese, English, um, and of a variety of different things. Um, economic reports, patents, um, art works, poetry, uh, songs, all, all sorts of different things. And I really enjoyed living in Tokyo and my wife is Japanese and she is an artist and runs a design studio. That's actually how I, we ended up in Copenhagen as she was running a design studio in Copenhagen. Um, and I chased her there. Uh, but anyway, uh, so we ended up by getting married, settling in Tokyo. Um, I became a professional translator. And she became, and we had three children, but then, um, in, when my oldest son was six and was entering into elementary school, we felt it would be a good idea to move uh, back to Canada because Japan, which I love, um, and is a wonderful, um, country with a wonderful culture is not always the easiest place for mixed race children. So we wanted to um you know to come back to a place uh, where there was more openness and tolerance of the kind of uh, of family that we had. Uh, and also, um, I found that in Japan, one can make a living a living quite a nice living by being a white man. Uh, You you can teach English, you can do all sorts of things, and it's really quite a comfortable existence, and comfortable existences do not lead to excellence. So I decided to... One of the reasons that we decided to move back was because we felt that it would be too easy to be complacent um, in in our careers in Japan, and we wanted to go to a place where we could create something new. In Vancouver, um, Canada, where we settled, It's it's an interesting city. Um, It's quite a raw city. It's a a young city. Uh, It's undeveloped in many ways. But it really is a place where different cultures come together uh, and where there's an openness and a huge celebration of cultural diversity. So we ended up settling in Vancouver um, at the end of the 1980s. And I was basically unemployable. Uh, I could not uh, for for several reasons. One is um, at that time people did not really appreciate the importance of uh, global business and the role that um, that Asia was going to play in the future of the the global economy. Uh, and also, I, as I said, I I'm just not good at being told what to do.
0: <laughs> so oh, but, all right, I yeah. see oh, that that oh, that's also an important factor of employment. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah.
1: And uh, so I couldn't find uh, a company that I wanted to work for. So I did the next best thing, which is I started one. And I started uh, a company with a, um, a, a Japanese woman who was a very successful um, simultaneous interpreter. Uh, her name is Yuko Yasutaka. She's still a very dear friend of ours. Uh, and we grew that company from the initial two of us to about 10 people. And I wanted to do something quite different. I I could see what was happening around software and multimedia and all of the the ways that the world was changing with new technologies coming on board. And uh, Yuko wanted to stay very focused on her career in simultaneous, simultaneous interpretations. So my wife and I bought her share of the company um, from her and we went on and we grew that into a company that became known as DNA Media. And DNA Media was a diverse company. We did um, software localization, which is the translation of software from one language into another. Uh, From that, we got into television production and we worked with NHK, the Japanese broadcaster, uh, to develop uh, TV shows and TV series. Uh, And from the combination of the software and the television work, we got into interactive media. And we did a series of interactive media projects, um, the Silk Road, which was you know, about the, the trade and cultural exchanges between uh, China and across Asia uh, and into Europe. Uh, we did one on the Klondike Gold Rush, which was the you know, what led to the development of the Alaskan and Seattle and Vancouver economies. Uh, We did one Star Sights, which was how the night sky has inspired the human imagination, um, and so on. Um, And one of the the most interesting ones was with Glenn Gould, the uh, classical pianist and composer and media artist. But anyway, as we were doing that, we brought together a lot of really interesting people. Um, from all over the world, from Korea, from Japan, from Poland, from from France. And we built a a global network of people who were interested in how interactive media um, was changing the world.
0: And many of those people
1: still work with us today. Um, But we got very ambitious, um, too ambitious. And in um, 1999, 2000, uh, we were way overextended. We had about 200 people working with us. Uh, we um, had no external capital. It was all self-funded. And in, as, as I'm sure many of your audience know, um, in 2000 was what we call the tech rep. And mm-hmm. um, our revenues um, basically collapsed and we had to completely restructure the company. We sold most of it to different places. We refinanced our house. Um, We uh, And and basically did a complete restructuring of our lives and our finances and how we work. It was a very painful experience. Um, In retrospect, I think we made a lot of poor choices uh, that we did not need to do all the things that we did. But it was a, you know, it it was a very sobering experience because we were coming off a decade of, you know, huge growth, um, huge success. We won, you know, building a 200 person company, um, winning all sorts of international awards, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then all of a sudden
0: that's actually very interesting because we are going through a, like a period of time now where many of the entrepreneurs that i know are facing similar things where it is a complete overhaul of their businesses or a complete stop of their businesses so someone who who, who i would say during one of the previous crises that we've had so far like what do you think was the main factors about you and your family that enabled you to restructure and come out of it in a sense? Like, what, what were the things that enabled you to actually like move forward? Because a lot of people um, are right now in the position and there seems to be no light at the end of the tunnel. So what would your...
1: I think the number one thing, Harsha, is mm-hmm. um, we trusted each other and we trusted the people around us. Hmm. So um, many of the people who work at Ipaca now, um, lost their jobs with us at that point in time. Because we went from a team of 200 to a team of, I think, six or seven. Mm. So it was radically reduced and we had a lot of debt and we spent um, much of the next decade you know, trying to pay down that debt. But the thing that, that helped, the biggest thing that helped us go through is we trusted each other and we trusted the people we worked with Um, And we were honest and transparent with them, and we um, we lived up to our obligations. Mm, Many people look at what we did and say, "You know, you didn't have to pay back all that money to banks, and you didn't have to do all of the different things that you did." Um, And it was tough, and not everybody was happy um, about the outcomes, uh, but. You know, we were able to uh just drive. Then I think the other thing that was really important in addition to trust was the ability to reimagine um, ourselves, reimagine who we are, what we're doing, learn new skills, um, find new new ways to apply those skills. Because we went very quickly <clears throat> to create a company that initially we called Recombine. Right? Mm-hmm. Recombining in all sorts of different ways. Uh, and then one of the people at the company um, shortened that to Recombo. Um. So from DNA Media, uh, we restructured into a company called Recombo, um, which um, had a sort of interesting history and it was sold two or three years ago for, for quite a bit of money. So for you know, tens of millions of dollars. So it had a happy ending. Um, it, had, it had a rough um, journey, but a happy ending. Uh, so, uh, and, and it was, um, we changed the name of that company from Recombo to Agreement Express um, a- along the way. So, but I had left <clears throat> um, Agreement Express in, I think, 2005 to sort of refresh, rethink, um, you know, explore some other ideas. And one of the ideas that we explored was you know, how can we use um, social tagging systems and social media to create new ways to approach learning?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we created a, a platform that went through a number of different names. Um, probably the best of the names was uh, was uh, ThoughtShare. No, actually, ThoughtShare was a different one. Um, Thoughtshare was one of the 1990s companies. Uh, What did we call it? It was initially um, OPN for Open Personal Networks. Uh, And then it went through a number of different um, rebrandings. And that company, unfortunately, never went anywhere um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, You know, design, design flaws um, that that we admitted, But That was a sort of another source of new people. So some of the people that work at Ibaka today come from the DNA period. Uh, Others come from this period where we were working very hard to understand how social networks work, um, how knowledge is exchanged through social networks, um, how ideas get shared um, and and so on. So it was, as a commercial um, exercise, it was a failure and it got wound up uh, but as a way of building um, people and connecting people and building new capabilities, it was a huge success for us. And Ibaka would not exist um, without the failure of that company.
0: And, and no, I find that very fascinating because, you know, they say there are no true failures like until the very end. right? And you, you'll only know, like years down the road like if something was like worth doing or not and you you've worked on or you've built so many companies from scratch and some that as you mentioned ran up to like hundreds of employees others which have uh, which sold for millions some which maybe didn't work out and some that needed to be reconstructed so in your experience what do you think is like the few things that make an idea work is it the idea itself is it the timing? Is it the people? Like, what are the elements that make it or break kind of like a good ideas? A lot of people have ideas, but how do you even pick the ones that would work and how do you bring that forward?
1: Yeah, so I, I think you're you're right. There are a lot of ideas are, for, for some of us anyway, ideas are the easy part. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we have ideas for new companies or new services every other day. Uh, and the problem is not having ideas, um, it's, Having the uh, the focus only to ex- try to execute on a small number of ideas, a small number of connected ideas. So I, I think that you know what makes um, ideas work is the ability of the idea itself to change, your ability to change the idea, because the initial idea is almost never what happens. But, you know, people say, uh, you know, we talk a lot about pivots in the early stage world. Um, but I, I'm not so sure that pivot is, is that meaningful a term. What we really see are transformations. But a transformation is not just a random change. It's based on the ability of the, um, the initial idea to be transformed and the ability of the people around it. Uh, to change and think. I'm sure you've heard the old um, phrase, don't fall in love with the solution, fall in love with the problem.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Um, because there there's many different ways to solve any problem. And what you want to be doing is constantly exploring different solutions. So I, I think that, you know, what you really want to do um, when you're looking for an idea around which to start a company is one, find an idea that people that the core team will be making an emotional connection to. And, you know, this, and this is is really important because companies are not um, one individual. You know, companies are, are a group of people working and collaborating together. And the, um, the time of the, the sort of sole genius, hard driving founder, if it ever existed, I think is long past us. So you know, what you want is an idea that has the emotional strength that has the, uh, the heart and the personality and the creative spark to bring people together around it so it's something that they they want to work on um, I do some angel investing and one of the first things that I ask people is I don't ask them about their business plan um, I don't ask them about their market I don't ask them about their technology I ask them so, you know, you're clearly a very smart person. Why are you doing this? Given all the other things you can do, why this? And the answers to those questions, um, you know, if a person says, oh, this is what's gonna make me the most money, chances that we'll or that I'll invest are virtually nil. Um, there's lots of ways to make money, um, but the goal of a, the purpose of a company is not to make money. The purpose of a company is to create value for, for, for people, either customers or society. It's to create value. And if you're not creating value, and you're not passionate about creating value, your company is not likely to succeed. Uh, so so a good idea is one that has those, those two characteristics. It binds people emotionally, and it has the ability to change and transform. Does that make any sense?
0: I think it makes perfect sense, and I really love those two components. I feel like, like as someone who runs my own business, like like a lot of what we do is around those two things. Even like in the people we work with or the people that we get to be part of our teams, it's always do you connect with our goal? Do you connect with our idea? And like, is this something that that you would be willing to kind of like like not just connect with, but make you want to be part of it? That you would kind of like be happy working on this, be inspired working on this every single day. And I feel like when we flip that the other way around that's how the business should should run in a sense. So it's not just for the people committing that love, it's that business committing that love back to the people. So I definitely agree with what you say. And you mentioned that, that a lot of the people that you work with also from different parts of the world. They are people from different cultures, different spaces, maybe even different industries. How do you, and, and you may know them, but Coming when they come together, they've got to not only work with you, but they've got to work with each other in a sense. So, how do you kind of like facilitate that collaboration around a shared idea? I feel like like it's a double-edged sword when people are emotionally connected to an idea because, on one side, everyone's passionate about it, but on the other side, everyone is very passionate about it. So, they will defend their opinion of what they think is best as far as possible. So how do you make? How do you kind of like facilitate the collaboration of a team that is from different demographics, different parts of the world, and still bring everyone together for that shared vision? I mean, as the CEO, that's kind of like your point job in a sense. So.
1: Yeah, that's that's job number one, isn't it? <laughs> uh, so I think that the um, there, there's a couple of things uh, that make that possible. One is what we were talking about earlier: um, fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Mm-hmm realize that there are always going to be multiple different solutions and then one of our uh, senior engineers has a great phrase uh, strong opinions weekly held
0: <laughs> oh, I like that I like that yeah. Yeah, let's yeah. More- no I think it's a good one
1: <laughs> yeah it's uh, and it's true right um, you want people to be have strong opinions but you also want them to be able to change their minds <clears throat> I'm sorry um, so it's uh, it's critical that um, people be able to change their minds. And the way you, you show that is you demonstrate it. Hmm. The leaders of the, com- of the company have to be able to change their minds. They have to be able to listen. Um, and they have to be able to, to change their minds um, and let other people's ideas flourish. So one of the ways we've tried to organize our company, so we're, we're very much key- and we've organized around teams. And each team. most teams have a leader, um, and the leader can be anyone. It's not the most senior person on the team. So there are several teams at Ibaka that I'm a member of the team, and as a member of the team, I report to the most junior person in the company.
0: <laughs> that's nice. That's nice. I, I understand how that feels, but it's nice to see a company at your scale actually do that. So amazing. You know? And how how do you get people to kind of like subscribe to that work culture? Do they come ready and expecting this or do they get a bit of a, oh, this is different when they join in, in a sense?
1: Um, since I've grown up in this, it's hard for me to answer that. Um, but we spend a lot of time um, in our hiring process, mm-hmm. uh, looking for people who, one who celebrate diversity. Um, it's not enough to tolerate diversity. one means to actually celebrate it. Um, And and that's really important. And you can generally get a um, a feeling for that when you talk to people and and you need to to learn more about what their passions are um, and and what they care about. Uh, The second thing we, we really look for is people who are, again, not just willing to learn, but for whom learning is sort of a core part of who they are. So, so part of our interview process is to um, ask them to learn something.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Um, like, could you then, give
0: us an example? Like, that's actually, that's quite interesting.
1: Uh, yeah, it, they, it, sometimes it's very, it's sort of work-related. Um, but let's, uh, I'll give you two examples. One is a, is a geek example, um, and the other is a technical, uh, is a non-technical example. So the, for the, the geeky example, part of our technology um, is based on the semantic web um, and you know understanding the relationships between different types of data and many people know very little about the semantic web when we hire them so we say um what we'd like you to do is go and learn about rdf which is the sort of basic base language for the semantic web and you know describe you know something in your world using RDF. So it's um, so you know that that would be you know, and that clearly is more for technical staff. Um, or another, you know, um, Ibica is uh, is very deeply um, ingrained in the design thinking approach. Uh, and and part of uh, design thinking is redesign. And there's actually a little project in Vancouver that uh, we support called Redesign Without Permission.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, so an example of that, um, I'm going to pick one that's important to me. Um, we don't actually use this very often, but is, you know, um, a lot of uh, bicycle accidents happen at intersections.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How would you redesign intersections to make them safer for everyone involved?
0: okay very very interesting and
1: and yeah go ahead yeah um and then you know and and we point them to resources for design thinking um and you know have them self-educate a bit but i i'm not sure um harsha if do you know much about design thinking
0: Yes, I know a little. I actually uh, watched a bit of your talk as well. Um, I think it was a design thinking approach that you presented at Intersection 19 in Lisbon, if I'm not mistaken, so um, correct me if I'm wrong. So that was very interesting. And I have studied a little bit about design thinking, but feel free to explain briefly for our audience who may be tuning in, because I thought your approach was pretty interesting in a way. Well,
1: I I think, yeah, so so as you know, uh, Harsha, the critical um, first part of design thinking is around empathy. So, um, you know, and, and this is why um, design thinking challenges are a really interesting way um, to, to get at how people think and feel, because we're, we're looking at how those come together, right, how the emotional and the intellectual come together. And design thinking is, is a great way um, to do that. So let's go back to the bicycle example. So, you know, a lot of people focus on empathy for the cyclist. <laughs> However, you're not going to solve this problem without a lot of empathy for the car driver or the truck driver.
0: Okay, I see. I see. That's an interesting way of, like, an interesting point of view as well. So, how? So, like, when? What responses do you do you get? What do you look for in a sense? Since this is part of your interview process,
1: like, I
0: I, so I, I like uh, the whole like empathy for the like truck driver and all. But how does that like work in a sense?
1: So, so we, we ask people to um, to explain, you know, to talk through, you know, how they came up with, um, you know, with whatever solution they propose. Um, and what we're looking for are, are a few things. One is, do they show empathy for all the different stakeholders? How widely do they think of the stakeholders? Um, but the empathy part is critical because that's what we're looking for in the, the people that we, we want to work with. And you can tell right by the tone of voice and how they gesture, um, whether their eyes light up. Uh, you know, you, you, you can tell if they're they're engaged and, and they actually have empathy for the, the different people involved. Then we, we look for um, you know the um, the ability to um, generate different solutions. So so not just to get um, tracked on, on one single solution, but you know, this this willingness to explore and then you'll remember we were talking about um strong opinions loosely held Yep, yep. so we challenge people um and we are looking not so much for the logical um response to the challenge but to the emotional response because you know not not everyone responds well to being challenged uh, and to having their their ideas challenged and we want to, to really understand um, how they respond to, to challenge and objections, because they're, they're going to encounter a lot of those. Uh, many years ago, when I was running DNA Media, I had a, a, a somewhat similar approach, um, but we would ask people questions um, until we got to things that they didn't know. And one of the things we were looking for is an acknowledgment. Um, I, I don't know that. Because some people try to sort of bullshit their way through that. Um, and they think that's the right thing to do. But we were actually asking for the we were looking for the acknowledgment of lack of knowledge. Because if you if you are not able to recognize what you don't know, you won't be able to learn. And learning was was so important to us. So coming back to, you, to, to your initial question, how we got off on this thread, um, you know, how do we, we recognize and hire people? Um, another uh, really important part is um, is just spending time with them um, and seeing how they behave in social situations, um, seeing uh, how they resonate with other people in, in, who are already in the company, um, and, and just trying to get a feel for, for how they interact with other people. So, um, you know, it, it's a combination of, of those things. We spend a lot of time um, hiring people. And uh, the other side of that is we are very loyal. <clears throat> so, um, you know, one of the most important um, ingredients in a company is trust. Um, and you're not going to have trust without loyalty.
0: No, no, and I, and I, I completely see where you're coming from, and I, and I one of the things that I really believe in is that the people in a company reflect the output of the company and it reflects what the company actually does and how it carries out its service. and I feel like even when you were just sharing earlier about the definition of what your company name is and like what it translates to, I feel like like, like in order to actually like put all three of those elements like really out there, I think you need the company culture to match, and I feel like that hiring process that you have facilitates that very well. So, that that is brilliant. I'm so glad we went on that thread. Actually, I feel like it, it breaks a lot of perceptions about what do you look for as, as a student in in a company, in a sense. And that is very important. And like moving on, like today into like the work you do um, with the bucket, like when you actually work with your clients, when you actually work with your stakeholders, do you see that company culture seep through into the, your interactions? And how important is it, like like that that, that actually happens?
1: So, you know, I think it's hard for me to answer that, honestly, because um, that's a question it would be better to ask our customers, mm-hmm. and the people we work with, um, but we try, um, the way that we try to make this come alive uh, is, one, is by referring back to our values when we need to make difficult decisions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So things like, um, that, and sometimes you might think, what does that have to do with the company's values? So for example, um, what is your data architecture?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you know, I would say that for a modern uh, company, uh, your data architecture or your data model is your DNA. Um, it, uh, it defines what is going to be possible for the company. Um, and so that better reflect your values. You know, is your data model open or closed um, who gets access to the data what are your integration policies all of those things can be traced back to your um, to your company's values and if they can't then you have to ask are those really your values
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, so, so values really count when you're when you're making decisions and they have to be referenced when you're making decisions um, another you know, part of what one of our, our key values is, you know, we try at every at every interaction with people we meet, whether it's a competitor, um, a possible customer, um, a former employee. Um, in those interactions, we try to create value for them, and we 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 believe in creating value first. So, uh, and and one way to think about the um, the, the the social economy. Um, you know, is it's a gift economy. It works by giving gifts. And you should give, you need to, to give gifts before you should have any expectation of, of receiving a gift. So, um, you know, we, we try to code our values into everything that we do, into how we sell, and how we deliver, or how we design, or how we architect our, our software and our, our underlying data. Um, to how we approach data privacy and data ownership. So let, let me give you a, a, um, a concrete example. So one of the things that Ibaka Talent does is it creates um, a skill profile. Most, of, um, most skill profiles are created in the context of working for an organization. <laughs> However, it's the individual who owns the data about themselves. So when you leave the organization, your skill profile goes with you. It's not trapped within the organization where you originally created it. Much of it. Now, there, there's, there are certain um, issues around proprietary information that needs to be managed. This becomes a design challenge. But basically, any information that has been collected about you or that you have generated about yourself should be your property. And it should travel with you throughout your career. So that's a big shift in how people think about this right um you know yeah. hr departments assume that any information that they collect is the company's property not the individuals but that's that's not productive over the long term because you know think of a large company um say ibm for example so um ibm has many extraordinarily talented well first of all ibm is a very good job Um, of help supporting its people's learning and helping them understand their skills. Um, So they're not a a customer, by the way, but I have some insight into how they approach this, and they do a fantastic job. So when a person leaves IBM, um, all of that information sort of falls into a black hole. But many of the people that leave IBM end up either contracting with IBM, they become contractors, or they become customers of IBM. So it is in everyone's interest that that data travel with the individual um, and be there, you know, be under their control. Um, that adds value to everyone over time. So that's that's you know sort of an example of how we've tried to take our values and code them into our business processes and code them into our software.
0: No, I feel more people need to hear this, like definitely, because uh, no, like. To see a company that is um, in this data-driven industry and still hold close to their ethical like values is, I think, an important role model for us all to keep in mind. Uh, often, when we hear about companies which are very heavily involved in the data side of things, we don't often hear the best or most ethical practices um, being stemmed out of the the way that they uh, conduct their business. And I feel it's because it is very, it is relatively new, like compared to some of the industries out there. So people are still kind of like learning how do they govern data? How like what are the parameters? What should what is the ethical standard in a sense that to see that you are like a leader in this is very important. And the whole following, sticking to the values is something that I hold very dearly in business. And I feel like, like every business should. And as a as someone who when when like to share a little bit, like we're someone who runs this company called Ascendance, we work with thousands of students across the world, but we haven't always been like that. I and mean, when we started off we were four kids who just did whatever we could. And along the way, as we grew in the last six years, there was a point of time where suddenly we were working with hundreds of kids and and our corporate partners that we were approaching, um, or the people we were approaching for corporate partnerships started becoming very interested in the data we had. And they were like, oh, you've got access to this many students, you've got interest, like, access to this much of their knowledge about their interests, about their this and their that. And suddenly, we saw a lot of people saying, like, I want to be your corporate partner as long as you can give me access to this data. And it was so painful to say no, because for the long time, as kids who started this business, we had to go and like beg for every corporate partner meeting. And then now, when people are coming to us, we were still like, no, we can't partner with you. It's against our ethical standard. And over time, it's gotten much, much better. And today, we have phenomenal corporate partners to actually support and lead in the cause. It's just that I feel like that point in time was very pivotal for us because it really made or break, like made or break, broke us as like a company in a sense. And it really established our policies of working with the outside world. And I feel like at every company, no matter what company you are, there is that point in time where you have to decide what in what actually is your standard, and are you sticking to it? So has there been like in your experience any times where um, the profit or the bottom line and the ethical standard may not have always like um, had the same decision to be made in order for the best for both. But you still had chose to stick to your values and like prioritize the company values over kind of like whatever additional profits or things that would come upon.
1: And and, Harsha, I think that that's what drives long term um, value creation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know the, the short-term opportunities can be very attractive, especially when you're thinking, how am I going to make, you know, how do I make payroll next week? Mm-hmm. Um, you know the, you know, when we describe a salesperson, we ask, you know, have they carried a number? Is how you, you know, if a person's a real salesperson, if a person's a real entrepreneur, um, if they if they have to meet payroll, Me- meeting payroll. Um, is in some ways your number one obligation. So when it's a question of your your values versus the short term opportunity to to meet payroll, that's when the, it really you know gets hard, gets difficult. But the right decision is always to live your values. And I found that if you do that, um, things will work out, and that's how you create the, the long term value for your. Organization, which I think is what you've experienced.
0: Yeah, but I think it's what you show by example. So thank you so much. And like, what would your advice be or like your experiences be for people in that situation right now where they've got to make that decision in a sense? Like, what would your words of wisdom to them be?
1: Well, I'm not sure I have words of wisdom, but I would say um, your values, you know, and your (laughs) values will help you make the decision. And the other one is don't make the decision alone. Make you know if you trust the people you work with, um, if you trust your partners, have the conversations with them. You know, um, you know it's um, as, as entrepreneurs we we often want to hide the stress um, from the people around us, um, and you don't want to stress them, but but you do need to be honest with them, and you know. These organizations thrive over the long term because of trust, um, and you you earn trust. You you know nobody um, is nobody does. Yeah, correct way to say this. You have to earn trust, and you earn trust um, not in the easy times, but in the hard times. All right, that's
0: true. That's true, and today, like. As someone who, like, I think um, your the company was like started in 2015. Today you've weathered the pandemic and are still doing amazingly. You've um, branched out to, I think, also um, Ibaka. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you Ibaka market, and then you have the talent division as well. And you seem to be going strong. The company seems to be amazing in a sense. How do like when How do you like? What's your words of wisdom of building trust with your clients? On the other hand so at a regular time and also during this pandemic where everyone is very jittery and everyone is very or extremely more cautious than they were before in a sense
1: so i, I think again it, it, it's really the same you have to be open and honest with them um, but you also have to be willing to uh, to compromise and to meet them halfway um to understand that their business is changing um, and as their business changes their relationship with you is bound to change and you know to you know, your your goal is um, you know and, and we've achieved this with a number of our customers is to be seen as an insider rather than an outsider mm. so bad things will still happen um, but they will tell you in advance um, so you that you don't get blindsided and that you can uh, prepare uh, and you know I you know, this during the pandemic was not the time to stick to the, uh, you know, the, the fine print in your contract. Yes. And it was the time to be flexible um, and to find new ways to create value. Uh, and you know, do everything you can to support your customers and your people, because it's really that web of relationships that you're you're creating and sustaining over the long term um, that's going to you know create true wealth you know wealth that is um, emotionally sound that is there for the long term now i have no aspirations to be a billionaire um, but i would like to create lots of millionaires so Rather than um, myself being a billionaire, I would rather create a um, hundred millionaires.
0: You know, I, I really love that you said that. That's actually one of our sentences, kind of like models in a sense that we use. It's, it's not about one person being successful, it's not about one person making the billions. It's about everyone being successful. So you know, making as many people successful and creating that flow of kind of like resources, the flow of wealth to help others be where you are today. So i yeah. i like it's just so great to hear someone else say this and it's amazing and um kind of like as we wind down like our conversation today maybe you could share with us a little bit about how you like how you actually work with your clients with the, the work that Ibaka yeah, does today to help other people grow and to help their businesses flourish
1: well i think actually it, and i'm actually going to take it even beyond that so one of the things that um so ibaka has deep roots in um, both uh, the the skill and skill management and performance management, but also, as you mentioned, in pricing and specifically value-based pricing. Now, conventionally, value-based pricing was all about the economics, um, how much differentiated value you were creating for a customer and how much of that you should capture back in price. But over the, the past decade, we've come to really understand that there are two more equally important dimensions to value. So one is the emotional value. Mm-hmm. But another one is uh, is what Karen, uh, Karen Chiang, my, my partner called community value. Mm-hmm. So, so how um, are you helping your customers create value, not just for themselves, but for their community? Uh, and I think this is going to become increasingly important over the, de- the next decades, as we come to understand that, you know, The things that we do ripple out into more and more parts of the world and um, as individuals and as organizations we have responsibility for those as well so you know and this is the uh, the perspective we we bring to our customers as well so uh, we try to help them understand the economic emotional and community impact that their solutions have on their customers and their communities, and that provides the, the the framework for decision-making around how to innovate, how to create value, how to capture value in price, what skills are needed to support the innovation. All the different threads come together there. I'm not sure if I answered your question. Yet.
0: No, 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 you did, you did in a way, and like, like, you could also share a little bit about maybe some of the services that you do and work with your clients to, to and or a story maybe of how you like facilitate that for your clients to create their shared value in a sense.
1: Yeah so um sorry I and we are a little bit over time so I'm getting no no,
0: no worries no worries like
1: um, <laughs> but very quickly um you know our so um we work mostly with organizations that are in the process of innovating mm. uh and They want to make sure that the innovations that they are investing in um, are going to create value. And they also need to make sure that both they and their customers have the skills required to realize that value. So most of our customers come to us um, inbound. They they look at our website and they they come to us. And then from that, um, we work with them to to create, um, you know, sort of a vision of what the future could be. So, um, how will we go about understanding the value of this innovation? Who is it valuable for? How will you price it? How? What skills do your people need um, along the customer journey? What skills do your new customers need along the customer journey? How do we pull all of those together to create a value model, a pricing model, and a skill model that will make the innovation successful?
0: Okay. And that is a very needed service, I feel, for a lot of people who are in that in that midst of innovation, as you said, especially in this time, in this pandemic, where like to to just quote um, a previous guest we had, it was uh, he is a professor. He actually does research, and one of his recent researches in the industry was about how this pandemic is the best time to actually, if you can, spend on innovation. And actually spend on marketing and innovation to bring your business because it's the time that new technologies that people are thinking about doing things differently. So more and more I feel that your work is relevant and that the services you provide could probably help a lot of the startups so or the owners of startups who are watching today um, actually bring themselves to the next level and make that transition in a sense. So absolutely amazing. And maybe just like I know we're a little bit over time as you mentioned, but I thought like just to end it off with like one last question in a sense. For many students who are watching this, I'm sure they're probably in awe in a sense that we could do something so innovative, so um that's still in this technological field, and at the same time something that is so close to heart. And they may not know how they're going to find this in their lives, in a sense. What is their ibaka in a sense, like moving forward? So, how, like, what's your advice for all of the students out there who are still exploring what they love doing, but want to maintain that standard, that ethical standard, to whatever it is, want to have that passion that you have, and want to ex- make that change, as you mentioned, economically, uh, socially, in the community? How do they find something that could do all of this, as you have done?
1: Well, I think that one thing is they're going to have to create it. Uh, And so I I think sort of two really important thoughts. Um, If you're doing something and you're not learning from it, it's time to change. So if you're in a job and you're not learning, um, it's time to change. And then the second question, are you building relationships that will last for the rest of your life? So if all your relationships are transactional, you're not building the kind of network um, that will support you throughout your life and career. So um, always be giving gifts, always be paying it forward, um, always be learning, and always be um, making investments for the long term. That make sense?
0: Very much so. And I think it's a brilliant piece of advice. And your whole session has been so gold, I would say. For, for me, at the very least, nice. if I've ignored anyone in the audience, I'm sorry. But I think I've just been very wrapped up in your story and those those, ex, those exceptional nuggets of wisdom that you've put in through it. So thank you so much for actually spending your time with us and actually having this conversation and sharing your thoughts and experiences. I think it is very, very valuable to a lot of us. And it's given me, personally, a lot of things that I need to go and think about and like put into place. So thank you so much for being on the show i hope you had fun too
1: okay well thank you very much and i really appreciate having had the opportunity
0: all right and for all of our audience if you like please do re-watch this and make sure that it sinks into your mind and you get all of the info that you can from it and uh, with that i think our conversation for today has come to a close you guys have been watching changing reality and i'll see you guys again next thursday so thank you guys see you then
1: thank you everyone bye
0: You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.